Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Collateral Damage. Uh, today, our guest is Jack Kelly, um, author of Sharp Needle, uh, a book about his journey from hockey to heroin to recovery to politics and ultimately in finding peace. Yeah, it's a great story. I happen to have the book right here. You do. Oh, there it is. Look at that. There we are. Very interesting cover. I like that artwork. Yeah, I I do too. I actually do too. Yeah. He's a pretty, pretty special guy. Very intelligent. Well, you've, you've known him for, you you know him a little bit, right? I do. Okay. I've gotten to know him for a little bit. We keep trying to figure out how we can do something together, how to Mm -hmm. work together in some way. Mm -hmm. I was really happy to be able to um, have him come on and, and tell his story. Yeah, no, I'm I'm very uh, I'm very excited to hear what he has to say. He's got quite a journey. Um, I've been kind of taking a peek at his website here. I can't wait to hear him uh, tell me about what led up to the book and you know about his recovery process and everything. So, yes, excellent. All right. Well, let's without further it. ado, let's do it, Jack <laughs> Kelly. So, Jack, thank you very much for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, My pleasure. Yeah, no, I know. Um, you know, in reading up a little bit about your situation, I noticed that you, uh, you know, you put that you are a person in recovery yourself, um, that your experience goes back into high school age, right? Yeah. Uh, my addiction began with sort of like the media narrative with the uh, opiate pain meds athlete. Like injury-based? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So I, I was a hockey player and I injured my shoulder. Mm. And that required uh, rotator cuff surgery, and and I was given a prescription of opiate pain med. It was Percocet, but mm-hmm. it was a lot of them, and I got addicted to them. And that was right when OxyContin actually was uh, released. So oh. that was a long time ago. So it was like 1996. I remember this. So, <laughs> I was yeah. also experiencing that right around the same time. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I I got hooked on them, and then it, it pro, you know I progressed to buying oxycontin on the street, and then you know sniffing heroin, and eventually shooting it. Man. And now, when were you? Uh, uh, did you did you stop in high school? No, did you... I got a something happened, but. Okay. <laughs> uh, so did you uh, did you end up stopping in high school, or did you this carry on into your adult years? No, too, right? carried on. So it, that began like when I was sixteen or so, and. Mm-hmm. and I got sober at 22 and I was, oh, wow. I got sober at this place called the Boston rescue mission. And I was there for about nine months and I've been sober ever since. And I'm 38 now. So wow. congratulations. Do the math. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You've been putting on, putting in a lot of work since then too, right? I have. Yeah, yeah. I have like so a lot now, of people. Yeah. But. Well, I mean, that's, that's uh, Maureen and I were just talking about this earlier, you know, all the work that people put in once they get well and, you know, be, they become an advocate for others. They become examples for others. Um, and, uh, you know, again, my understanding is that you've, uh, you've tried to advocate, you've, uh, you've authored a book, you've got, um, a lot of opinions and, and, and feelings about the way things should be, uh, in this mm-hmm. field. Um, you know, some of which are around mental health and recovery, correct? That's correct. Yeah. I, being someone who's in long-term recovery, I think, especially with the whole opiate epidemic, there's a lot of talk about the acute phase of addiction, mm. which is necessary, especially with the overdoses and, and with a drug like heroin and now fentanyl, how quickly someone can die when they have a relapse. So I certainly understand that from a public health standpoint, but there isn't a lot of focus after, let's say the two year and beyond part where people, they sort of incorporate themselves back into life and you know things happen, like things happen to a lot of people. And uh, you, you see, statistically speaking, this is backed up, but also just my own anecdotal experience that 
after a while, people, you know, the coping skills, they, they kind of run into a wall and, and mm. nobody is really highlighting that they may need additional help, that the reason they were doing substances in the first place is probably some, you know, dual diagnosis somewhere along the line. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's a good point. I mean, you're talking about a, uh, a lifestyle that when you come back from it, it's like you know, you're coming back from war, you know, relatively speaking. It's, you're coming back from this, this battle. Uh, where trauma has been done, more trauma, compound trauma. Um, and, you know, we are lacking in certain life skills and, and have done a lot of damage to ourselves that you're right. I mean, I guess all the focus is on that beginning stage of getting people off of them, getting, you know, getting them to, you know, stop proverbial, proverbially punching themselves in the face repeatedly, you know, is to actually stop the damage that's being done. And then now what? Right. Almost like bringing someone back from war. Now what? Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's actually in, in my book, I actually use that example when I was at this place called New Hope, which is in Weymouth, Massachusetts, which yeah. is a decommissioned Air Force base. And when I was walking around there, that's exactly how I felt like I was returning from war. Yeah. And the services were lacking? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I mean, they, I guess they were adequate. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think at that point, it was under the model of alcohol addiction and, you know, other things, but the sort of 28 day model, this is when the opiate epidemic was really at the beginning stages. And I, I'm not really sure the system was equipped to deal with a lot of younger people who were hooked on such a powerful drug. Mm. And, you know, when I was there, there was probably 80% were under the age of 25. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's a, I think there's a lot of a difference between someone who enters treatment, older and someone who is entering treatment and such a young age just because it's you know there's no life skills at all and you sort right. of at one moment you were like a teenager and now the next minute you're like a stone cold junkie or whatever you know mm. whatever word people want to go but that's how you feel you know mm. like and you're sort of like wow what happened to me you know um and i know that that's a a word we don't use anymore and we shouldn't but sometimes like that's something you need to feel and even as you stay in recovery a long time, you can kind of, those feelings can creep up, those self-esteem, inadequacy issues, and you sort of wonder, am I always gonna be, is there something inherently wrong with me that made mm-hmm. me do that, even after a long term in recovery? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you never actually develop as a teenager and it's, you know, you develop into uh, addiction, what else do you know, right? I mean, yeah. that, the, yeah, whole, the whole idea of launching in adolescence is to launch into, whatever it is you're going to be, you know, whatever career, whatever education, whatever kind of person you're going to be. And then uh, you don't have a chance to do so. And you just launch into addiction. Yeah. Very no, true. No it's other true, skill yeah. sets and to speak of. Yeah. So what brought you to write the book, Jack? I'm curious. What, what made yeah. you like, cause you've been, you've been in recovery now for a long time. Mm. And so what was that? What inspired you to write about it? Well, so I, I've always wanted, I've always been a writer. And I think that anybody that writes a book can probably, like you, like you just sort of have it in you and you want to write. And I always been writing ever since I got sober. I did it before I got hooked on drugs. Mm. And you're always trying to figure out, like, how do I get into this world of writing? Right. And I had this particular story that was appealing to a lot of people. Not that I'm any different or unique. A lot of people have the same story. But I think because when i entered recovery i took a took a different path than a lot of people getting into politics and when i ran for office i was very open about my addiction 
So it was almost a natural way to pe- everywhere I would go, I'd get asked to speak and tell my story and so on and so forth. And it had been suggested to me that I, I put it into a book form and mm. I had tried to do it a couple of times, but it didn't feel it wasn't right. It, I, I felt like it was very ego driven and it wasn't until I had some setbacks and recovery on an emotional standpoint. And I had was in Nepal going to Mount Everest base camp over a year ago. And that's when it kind of just crystallized for me. And I got home and see you later. I just mm. put it pen to paper and made it happen. I shouldn't say pen to paper. I put uh, fingers <laughs> to keyboard. Yeah. I was going to say, wow, you went old school, huh? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's how they used to be written. I just couldn't do that, man. Right, right. I always like wonder, like, I can't believe people used to write books in such a manner, but, you know. Or just using a typewriter without spell check and without, you know, uh, being able to go back and completely redo a paragraph or sentence and have it all flow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine. (laughs) I wouldn't have a book right now. Let's put it that way. I'd still be, you know, pecking away at the keyboard. Right, right. right. That's really interesting. So you, you you were going to climb Mount Everest. Mm-hmm. Which sounds base really camp. base camp, base camp. Yeah, not the whole yeah. thing. Okay, you were going to base camp, which uh, to me that you know you might as well be say I might as well yeah, tell I you mean, I'm going to the moon. But so you're going to do this. So this sounds like someone who's really got their whole life together. I mean, that sounds really together when you're doing stuff like that. When you're healthy enough to do things like that, mm. to me, I would look at you and think that guy's like he's he's on top of everything. But you were still struggling. Yeah, I mean, so there's two ways of looking at that. Like from a financial and professional standpoint, I did have my life together. Mm-hmm. But there were these other, I guess, I don't know if you want to call it PTSD or anything, but like just sort of feelings that had emerged that was surprising. And, and it was the catalyst with some disappointments in life. And you tend to get triggered by certain things that you probably didn't even aware. And I think for me, there was probably a lot of like abandonment issues that Mm. I didn't think were there, you know, I mean, and then I had to like, look at it. Like, yeah, I was this regular kid, you know, I'm not like a tough guy. I'm not a criminal or anything. And I was one minute I'm playing hockey. The next minute I'm like on the streets stealing and, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like, I'm sober and I kind of got, super into my career and you know my life was such a mess that there was it was easy to focus on getting my life together and then when it did like we all do there were other things that popped up and i had to start looking at some of that issue so i mean the everest trip for me was really i kind of got back to my roots a little bit like it was good to be there like no one looked at me as an ex-heroin addict. No one looked at me as like a ex-politician or whatever. I, I just was kind of like myself. Mm. I was recreating who I was in recovery. And it was interesting. I always felt kind of jealous of people who would relapse and come back in and out because I felt like they were able to use that as a way to reinvent themselves. Where for me, it was like I had like this emotional bottom in recovery. Mm. And I didn't really feel like it was something that people talked about a lot. Even when I had been going on 12-step meetings for a while, it wasn't something that people ever really talked about. They just Mm. either disappeared and got high or unfortunately some of them committed suicide and and yeah that's what i mean that's what it sounds like a recipe for relapse how you were feeling yeah Mm -hmm. you managed to do something 
And I, I mean, I, I'm sure part of it was writing the book and part of it was looking deeper, but you managed to do something to keep yourself from, from doing that. Mm. Yeah. And so the good thing was I do, I have developed in recovery, a lot of healthy coping skills. So I've, I've picked up running, I do yoga I'm in a lot of types of communities that are very healthy. It's not all, a lot of my support network is not all recovery based people and it's mm-hmm. a different group of people, which I think was able for me, it helped the process because it just, I had these things that where I knew I could get past it, right? So it was, I would have a bad day and if I didn't feel good, Mm. I'd go for a run and I'd feel a little better. So I knew that from just a psychological standpoint and my physical being that exercise and releasing those endorphins was going to help the process. And then on a deeper level, I went and started seeing a therapist, which I had never done before. Mm-hmm. So the, the, these, these were all like these types of courageous acts for me to actually do it. In fact, I found it less stigmatizing to admit that I was a heroin addict than dealing with mental health issues. Really? That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Still do. I don't think that's unusual, though, no. for people to feel that way. I think that there's, uh, there's a huge, um, you know, you feel, you feel weak. I, I know that when I admitted, in, I talk in my book about um, going on an antidepressant, and that was the stupid stubbornness that I that I didn't do it sooner because I thought that I, sh- I that it it was admitting that I was weak and I couldn't do I couldn't handle something, mm. and then my you know badge of honors that I could handle anything, <laughs> but that's so foolish because as soon as I started to take medication and I'd always gone to therapy so that, but of course I did that quietly also and I didn't talk about it. But when I first, when I started to talk to, to actually go and the medication started to work and I actually been, was able to participate fully in the therapy, mm. everything changed, everything changed. And you know, my joke with my therapist is why didn't you do, why didn't you recommend this sooner mm-hmm. when she was telling me to do this for like 10 years. So, um, yeah, and I think that that's it's so hard to talk about that. The judgment is still there, so but it's so important to talk about it because when you start talking about it, then other people feel like you know what, maybe maybe I can go and maybe I can get a little help and I can start opening up or maybe I should look into some kind of medication. Mm. So yeah. I think it's awesome that you're speaking about this. Yeah, it's funny when. The, the thing that propelled me to not be quiet about my addiction when I was running for office is the same thing now that's compelling me when I speak about addiction because of the whole book thing and I'm asked to speak at different places. I emphasize how challenging life can be with this demon inside of you. Mm. And I'm very well aware that all the success I've had and the long-term recovery that I had doesn't guarantee me that I'm immune to anything and i've been around long enough to know that and so i'll you know and i was just like you maureen like i fought it you know i'm like mr recovery and i turned my life around and you know, i don't need anything and, and it's just total nonsense i mean mm. and i like what and it, it comes back to like that ego thing like what am i trying to prove to people like i i, I want to feel good i don't want to die and so what's recovery recovery is taking care of yourself and so I speak a lot about that. And that's not even something that people in recovery need to adhere to. It's also just people that don't have this that deal mm. with mental health issues. And, you know, I, I no longer care. So I talk about it all the time Yeah. because if you need help, go get it. And there's no shame. There's no stigma. Mm. It's like I always kind of come back to this thing. Like, I know I'm doing good when I kind of don't give an 
F what people think. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, wow, my recovery is good today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no medal or award for, for toughing it out with this stuff, Mm-mm. you know? No. No. <laughs> well, the heart, I mean, when you when you think about recovery, recovery is about getting back to zero, right? Like when when I was out there and I was active, it was, you know, I was living kind of a less than zero life. I was hustling. I was causing damage. You know, I was actually creating problems. And, you know, recovery, the recovery process that, that exists, the one that I participated in, it brought me back to zero. It didn't fix all my problems. It didn't make me better at living life. It just got me to zero. It got me away from doing that damage. And then the rest is up to you. You know, you can have um, a recovery process where you start adding elements to it, like you're talking about. You can add mental health services to help deal with the trauma or the un- unresolved issues that existed in the first place, or not, right? And some of the people choose not to. And I, you know, I, I did not have that experience. Um, but hearing your experience makes me uncomfortable that there are a lot of other people out there that share that experience and feel stigmatized because. You know, the recovery process comes across as a, a self-help process that you can fix on your own, right? You can do these steps. You can do this stuff. You can overcome it. You can get well, whereas mental health is different. You need other people's help. You need to be open to suggestion. You may need a medication. Like, it comes across a little different. Um, you know, I feel like the recovery empowers you, but the mental health maybe feels different, right? I mean, the recovery process for that? Yeah, I mean, like, part of it, I almost, I think, have contributed to a system that enforces this kind of mythical hero in recovery and mm. like recovery all-star type of thing, like where, you know, people like myself are asked to speak to provide hope or whatever, which is awesome. But mm. I think it, it creates an unrealistic expectation of like the humanity. Like, in other words, like I am held to such a standard because you know, someone asked me to speak or I've been open about this. And, and there are times where I'm, I'm kind of like, it, you know, it's funny. You asked me why I wrote the book. It's so interesting. I wrote the book to put a lot of this publicly behind me. Mm. Like for once and for all, it's like, you know, if you want to hear my story, then buy my book. And, <laughs> and I don't mean that in an arrogant way. I just, it, it's like, I've, I've become like, this is just my experience. Like I've got, I've kind of become sick of talking about it and sick of being like Mr. Recovering heroin addict mm-hmm. because there's so much more to me than that. And so like the whole thing about writing the book was almost kind of like for me internally putting closure on it in the sense that here's my full story. Here's the details and that's it. You know, now I can, it doesn't have to be totally my persona anymore. And, um, you know, ironically, of course, like the, the you know, the book does well. That means I have to speak more. About it. <laughs> I, I think you understand what I'm talking about. Like it, it was just for me, very personal. I had to like kind of get this out. And, it's yeah. cathartic. It's cathartic to put all that on yeah. paper. And it's it's easier to say, if you want to hear the story, I wrote it down than to keep telling the story over and over again, have it identify you. But ironically, like you said, then you write a good book and everybody's like, oh, you're the guy that wrote the book. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of feel too like um, it, it dispels any kind of idea or um, suggestion that I may be ashamed of anything too, because yeah. I'm not. And and there's nothing to be ashamed of. And here's here I, here I even wrote it down for you. <laughs> mm. yeah. So I'm I'm not hiding anything. There's no shame here. This That's is what point. happened. This is my story. And um, 
and you know i think that you should read it because it's it's a it's and i think that people should read your book too it's it's like the it's the truth and it's what happens mm -hmm. and it still is here you are sitting here and you know uh, I, I lived through a, a lifetime of, uh, when I was younger, of, of uh, drug use. I'm, you know, watching my daughter. She's just doing amazing. And um, it, it doesn't have to always be that way. And there's, no. there really, and there's nothing to be ashamed of. And I think that until that we, we both mental health and substance use, until we get past that, mm. that shame part, you know, our own shame, not not anybody else's stigma that they're putting on us, but talk about, you know, not being shamed ourself. And when you get to that point where you say you don't give an F, then you know what I mean? I think you're right. I think that is when you're really doing well. Mm. <laughs> True story. I like Absolutely. that. Yeah, use it. <laughs> so, so Jack, if there was one thing you could do, Jack, to, to like one point you'd make or one thing you would do to, to make things better, um, what would it be? Mm. Hmm. Very loaded question. We wouldn't have enough time to answer all the detail <laughs> of what I think we should do. Yeah. However, um, as it relates to what we're talking about, just find your tribe and just be you and be vulnerable and be powerful. Be everything that you are and mm. don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of like the warts. Don't be afraid of the greatness. Don't be afraid of just who you are and own it all. You know, you don't need to be false, the false humidity or humility or, you know, get so down on yourself where you just can't get rid of this stuff. Like if you need help, you go get help. If you want to talk to a friend, go talk to a friend. If you are someone that is concerned that your recovery might not be going in a certain way, then that's okay. That's okay. Mm. You know, you, we're not perfect and we don't right. need to be. So. Right. So having more, you know, just being more tolerant as, you know, for us being more tolerant of people and how they're trying to get well. And, you know, I like what and, you said. Well, be right? more tolerant to yourself. True. I know, right. We're always our, our worst uh, critics. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Absolutely. So that would be my message. And, and kids don't do drugs. <laughs> <laughs> I, love I think it. that's a good, just say no. Yeah. Just say no. <laughs> Excellent. Um, anything and what was the name of your book again? I mean, you may want to just needle. Hold on a second. Hop up. There Thank it is. You. Yes. Love, and we'll have some information up about that as well. I want to make sure people can get access to that. So we'll have yeah. some links up for people to click on uh, when we put this up on Facebook and when we put this up on YouTube. So. Perfect. You're speaking uh, a lot too. I've been noticing you here, there, and everywhere. Anywhere coming up anytime in the next month or so? Uh, no, actually. I, uh -oh. It was a busy month. and But as you know, it kind of sometimes, I mean, I could get a call today. Right. You know, so yeah. it's, as of now, no. But the, the coolest thing I did recently, I spoke at uh, the Pittsfield uh, uh, prison. That was amazing. Mm. Oh, yeah. That sounds wow. great. Absolutely amazing. I mean, that that's one of those moments where, you know, I mean, you know, Marnie, like you drive around and you're doing all this stuff. But I had one of those moments which made me realize, like, this is my calling to help. Mm. I had such an effect on them. It was just incredible. And the energy and I, I really I was flying when I left there. And, and that was cool. That's amazing. That's an awesome feeling, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it's great. Great. Yeah, we were just talking about that, Mike and I, and our last guest, we were just mm. talking about that feeling of, you know, 
of you knowing when you're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just connecting with people. And you know, when I see people in prison, I, I it's just people that like through a variety of different reasons, genetic, environment, you know, whatever circumstance went left when other people went right and mm-hmm. they're in there. I mean, it's, it's or got caught when people. others didn't. It's just, you know, <laughs> yeah. 90% of people in prison are just, just shit happened to them. Right. Yep. That's true. Well, thank you so much for being on today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. It's always, I have to see you who have to like tune into a podcast to actually see you, but this is, <laughs> we have to get together more. Yeah. It was good. to. It, I appreciate you. Very you, nice um, to meet you, Jack. Absolutely. Thank you everybody. And uh, keep up the good work. Well, that was a, uh, that was fantastic. It was really, uh, I, I really enjoyed listening to Jack explain his book, his journey, um, you know, how he was able to uh, kind of reinvent himself uh, using this journey. You know, I, I thought it was interesting how he was talking in the beginning um, you know, about being, you know, seeing these people who got to kind of keep relapsing and each time they got to reinvent themselves and that he was, you know, he was struggling with this, uh, this, this emotional battle, almost like the, the prelapse experience out here. Uh, and he was able to use the book and all of these other things to help him reinvent himself in, in recovery, which I thought that was great. That was yeah. Amazing. I love how he talks about having an emotional uh, rock bottom in recovery. So, uh, well, yeah, yeah. Because I think people think, well, now you're all better, you know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and go about your life. <clears throat> Excuse me. But we still, um, you know, uh, you still have problems just like everybody else, right? Mm-hmm. You just, you know, have an extra problem of, of addiction and that he had was in recovery from that, but that didn't keep him from having, having other issues. And, mm-hmm. but I, I, it, I always, when I talk to him and even during the, and during this podcast, I always, we always wind up talking about mental health and, right. and the difficulties with that. And I love how he is um, now, you know, has become so, so brave and open about it because there is still stigma. I always feel like, you know, you start talking about, I don't know, being on medication or, mm-hmm talking about depression or anxiety and then everything you say after that is a little suspect you know that people are kind of like waiting for you to flip out or Mm -hmm. or you know or you know are you okay and it's like yeah i'm just like you only on medication right perfectly (laughs) normal human being i just needed a little adjustment thank you exactly yeah so um and you know, so I, I just, I really enjoyed that part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, that is, I mean, that's a huge, um, that is a huge stigma around mental health. I mean, I just recently attended a, a local conference, Tritown Con- Council here in, uh, in my area. And they, you know, they were really focused on the fact that it's, it, there is such a stigma around it. And, and, and it was, you know, to, to Jack's point, it was almost, he was, he was more uncomfortable saying I have mental health issues than he was to say I'm a heroin addict. Uh, you know, that that, that that stigma stigma was more significant and, and possi- possibly even in the recovery community. I mean, there's a lot of people who, um, you know, maybe don't understand the fact that both can be happening right. um, and that just because one is addressed, the other one doesn't go away. Like if you yeah. address the mental health side of things, the substance abuse issues don't necessarily go away and vice versa. You just you get rid of the substances and you get sober all of a sudden you expose other possibly untreated mental health conditions that may need something, medication, yep. therapy, some sort of adjustment. So it was good to hear him say that. Yeah, I think so too. I enjoyed his, I enjoyed that conversation. Yeah. So could I, that trip to uh, Everest, I mean, I'm, 
I hate, I, I went to uh, Mount Pemigewasset up in New Hampshire, which is like a one mile mountain. And I was gas. <laughs> I think I took like five breaks. My kids were laughing at me. I got to the top and felt like I climbed Mount Everest. But it I was, know, but yeah. he talks about it like it's nothing. Like he went right. down to the corner store. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I was just up at base camp and we were just hanging out, you know. It's pretty crazy. Oh, I, I, but this is a, you know, this is a huge story. I mean, we, we're seeing it more now. I think people are talking about it more now. People writing books like this more now. Um, you know, talking about overcoming addiction and not just not using anymore, but not using and making something different, you know, making a, a, a difference with their life, with their story, giving back or, you know, just doing something awesome with themselves, which I think is, you know, <clears throat> those are the stories that inspire people to get well. Absolutely. And going back to maybe the things that, you know, what your life would have been without drugs, because mm. his injury is the thing that um, got his, um, his sports injury was the, right. the thing that uh, precipitated his, his addiction. And mm. um, so who knows? I mean, he may have been doing all of those things had drugs not come into the, into play. And I think that's true for a lot of people. There's a lot of things people would have been doing if not, if not for this, you know, years of a gap. Mm -hmm. And to be able to go back to that, there's no reason, you know, not to. Yeah. It's, uh, um, so there's a podcast under the skin, Russell Brand, I think uh, is his name. And he, I, I was listening to one of his podcasts and he was talking about recovery and what it, what it actually means, his definition. Um, and, you know, it was something to the effect of, you know, recovery is about recovering the life you should have had mm. before you became addicted. You know, uh, re not just recovering from the substance abuse, but recovering the life you should have had uh, in whatever, whatever capacity that is. I, like and, that. I thought that was pretty good, too, because it it completely separated the word recovery from the substances in my mind. It wasn't, you know, recovering from the drugs. It was recovering from the damage to my life. Hmm. Right. I mean, the drug that, that's the medical side of things like I'm recovering. OK, I've stopped using I'm at a hospital, I'm getting some rest, I'm eating food again, I'm taking care of my body, I'm starting to feel better. That's the physical recovery from the substance. Mm -hmm. Then there's maybe the emotional recovery from whatever trauma happened, but then there's the recovery of your life. You know, what's next? Like when we were talking with Jack, it was like, what, will you come out of treatment? Now what? Right. Okay, so you got to zero. Now what? Now what are you going to build here? <laughs> what are you going to do from this point forward? And, you know, hearing hearing about people like Jack and other guests that we've had on the show and um, you know, your daughter, myself, uh, people that I know in recovery who are, you know, building on top of that and basically recovering the life they should have had, you know, or the life they could have had or, or the life they're supposed to have, however you want to look at it. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I like that. I get a tattoo like that. <laughs> new tattoo ideas. Yes, new <laughs> ideas. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> oh God. All so right. now, uh, so we got, we're going to put up some information about, um, Jack's book. Uh, so sharp needle, we're going to have some information about his website, uh, up in this podcast. And, uh, I believe that he's got, um, you know, he's got a couple speaking engagements coming up. I'm not quite sure yeah, where they speaking. are in relation to this podcast that when you hear it, but, um, you know, definitely look at, uh, uh the website. I know he has uh, appearances listed in there, uh, that he may keep updated. So. All right, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for joining us today on this episode of Collateral Damage. Uh, as always, if you'd like to find out, uh, find out all the different ways that you can listen to our podcast, you can visit our website, which is www.cdpodcast.com. There are many different ways to, to, to listen and subscribe, and we encourage you to choose the one that's most appropriate for you. And as always, I would encourage our listeners to get informed. 
Stay connected. Thank you for joining us.